This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled "The Two Truths: The Relative and the Absolute," recorded June thirteenth, nineteen ninety-three, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. During the height of medieval Christendom, based on the Christian worldview, truth was not a problem because truth was guaranteed ultimately by God. The scriptures, of course, at an exoteric level, were guaranteed by God. But even in terms of philosophers and people with more esoteric understanding, they never doubted that there was a truth. They were not nearly as dogmatic as the modern materialists portray them to be. You just have to read Augustine to see his his searching mind, a mind that's trying to grapple with all sorts of ideas, from the very highest to much more practical sorts of. Uh, notions, but he never doubts that there is a truth that could be known, an absolute truth, and that absolute certainty, at least at some level,、uh, is possible. But when the、uh, Christian worldview began to break down, one of the things that went with it was this sense of truth. As people stopped, at least、uh, the intelligentsia of Europe stopped believing in God, they lost this guarantee of truth. Where did truth come from then? What was truth? Became a big question, and the new materialists who were formulating their worldview and also who are winning political power all through Europe through the French Revolution and so forth began to think of truth in a very different way. Truth was supposed to be a match between thought and experience, concepts and phenomena. This was supposed to be the basis of the scientific approach to the world. Bacon was probably the first to formulate this in a sort of consistent manner, but it's basically what we think of as the scientific method. You have an idea, a theory about how things work in the world, and you go out and you examine experience, and that either confirms or disconfirms your theory. And if it confirms your theory, you say that theory is true. And this was very successful, especially during the 18th and 19th century. Uh, there were all these theories developed that were confirmed by experience, experiments, and so forth. They generated technologies that fueled the new industrial basis for this materialist society.、Uh, and only a few philosophers questioned this. David Hume was one, and I'm not going to go into a whole exposition of David Hume's critique of this theory, but he、uh, delved into this whole idea: could truth be gotten from experience? What did it mean, and what did experience itself mean? How do we even know there's a world? And he ended up without being able to formulate any positive conclusions about this. In fact, one of the most famous things he showed was that cause and effect, which is the basis of the idea of Newtonian science, was just a habit of mind. There was no basis in truth to it. Well, some philosophers were exercised by this. Immanuel Kant, for instance, called this the the scandal of philosophy, and set out specifically to refute Hume, or at least reestablish some basis for truth. And then Hegel was a response to Kant, and all the way down the line. And you can say that David Hume set the agenda for modern philosophy. But most people, of course, weren't the least bit concerned with this. This was stuff that went on in academia, and materialism was.、Um, Based on science, and science was producing all this technology, and all the political revolutions based on this were successful, and the whole world, as we know, transformed from a feudal society to our modern society. 
However, something happened in the early part of the 20th century that made even scientists and other people take note of this original criticism that Hume had made, and that is that there was a tremendous revolution at the heart of science, first with Einstein's theory of relativity and then with quantum mechanics. And it turned out that these truths of Newtonian physics, which had been supposedly confirmed once and for all, weren't true after all. For instance, Newton had said that gravity is what holds the solar system together. Well, there turned out to be no such thing as gravity in Einstein's theory. What holds the solar system together is that the planets simply follow the curvature of space. So a whole concept just suddenly evaporates. And then uh, uh, ideas about time. Newton's idea that time was this steady flowing thing, of course. In Einstein's world, time is not. Time is a flexible, elastic dimension of a continuum. And these were very upsetting to people, particularly philosophers, but they were also upsetting to the society, this idea that what you thought was so true turned out not to be, that this scientific approach was subject to change. And then, of course, quantum mechanics blew out even the whole idea that there's an objective universe apart from observers out there. And this was, you know, absolutely devastating to philosophers, but it hasn't really filtered into the culture yet, although it's beginning to through popular works. But uh, the question then raised, well, if we can't count on theories of science being true, what is truth? Is there such a thing as truth? If the theories of yesteryear can be overturned by the theories of today, then who's to say the theories of today won't be overturned by the theories of tomorrow? So everything you believe today could be false. We look back at ancient peoples who believed in spirits and demons and so forth, and we kind of smile and say, well, they're naive, those poor people. They didn't know any better. But suddenly the specter arises that 100 or 200, 300 years, people are going to look back at us and smile and say, those poor naive people, they were, they were just deluded, they didn't know any better. So <clears throat> this, uh, this idea that maybe truth, absolute truth, is unattainable, began to enter into the thinking of Western philosophy in this century. And philosophers began to say, well, there really is no such thing as absolute truth. All truth is relative. All truth is, is like scientific truth. It's relative. It works, but it's, it's not really absolute. There is no certainty. And of course, this gave rise to all sorts of philosophies that had to do with how do you live your life in a world where it's all uncertain, like existentialism and so forth. But then something was noticed about this statement. All truth is relative. It's an absurd statement. Is that truth relative? Or is that truth absolute? If all truth is relative, if that's absolutely true, then obviously all truth isn't relative. That statement itself is absolutely true. However, if the statement all truth is relative is not absolutely true, that means there could be absolute truth. So that statement itself is a contradiction and a paradox. Maybe you can say there is no such thing as truth. But then you have to ask, well, is that statement true? You start getting in these impossible contradictions. You can't even speak anymore. And this has given rise in the latter part of this century to a whole movement in philosophy called deconstructionism. I don't know, how many of you have ever heard of deconstructionism? Jacques Derrida, well, you might, but your children will. If any of you have got kids in college, they're all reading this 
right now, today. I'm very excited about it because it means the end of everything. <laughs> Nobody can say anything. But the only point I want to make here is that the status of truth is completely in question in the West today. What is truth? What anybody can say about truth, if they can say anything about it, is all up in the air. And of course, this doesn't necessarily affect us immediately, what uh, philosophers and academia think, but eventually it does affect the society because a lot of other very practical and very important personal questions are based on that, like how do you live your life? How should a society organize? If we don't have any idea of what's true, we can't have any idea of what's real, and then we can't do anything but uh, thrash around in a, a sort of a dream world. But in any case, this is not the teaching of the mystics, that all truth is relative. The mystics have said, always, have claimed that there is an absolute truth. But there's a catch. It's well put by Ananda Mayamai, who was a great saint of this century in India. She said, God's true being cannot be described. For when speaking of being, there is the opposite of non-being. When trying to express him by language, he becomes imperfect. The catch is, there is an absolute truth, but we cannot put it into a statement. We cannot express it in language. We cannot express it in words. We can talk around it and uh, whatnot, but we cannot actually formulate this absolute truth and then write it down in a book and pass it on by that method of communication. Why can it be formulated in words? Is it because it's so high and, and mighty and mystics are such wonderful people that it's beyond the uh, capabilities of normal people to grasp? No, it's not. It has to do with the nature of language itself. And language is an expression of thought. It really has to do with the nature of thought. Thought divides experience. It divides up the world. The mere naming of something is already uh, created a division. If I say cat, and I point to that particular phenomena there, and if you understand it, you understand that cat refers to a certain form, then automatically I've isolated cat one form out from all that is not cat. I already have A and not A. I already have a distinction. So it's in the nature of thought to break up experience and to break up the world into many forms, many things, many uh, experiences. And what the mystics say is that somehow the absolute truth transcends that. That in fact... These distinctions are not real. That the absolute truth, which is about the absolute reality, or in fact in the limit of the absolute, is the absolute reality, is bare of any distinctions. Truly speaking, distinctions are products of our thinking, if you like. And the world that we experience through the grid of distinctions is a world of our own making not a real world. It's a world of images, literally imaginary. 
So for this reason, then, mystics have claimed things like, Abin Arabi wrote, This knowledge of the Absolute cannot be arrived at by the intellect by means of any rational thought process, for this kind of perception comes only by divine disclosure. Because the intellect and rational processes deal with concepts. But if the absolute truth transcends these distinctions that thought makes, then obviously thought can't grasp it. The minute thought tries to grasp it, thought divides. Catherine of Genoa said, he meaning God, which is in Christianity equivalent to truth, he is above and beyond whatever may be felt or conceived. Such knowledge does not come through the intellect or will, as I have said. It comes from God with a rush. Notice she adds in here, it's not something that can even be felt. Doesn't come through experience. Doesn't come through something that's felt or conceived. It comes from God with a rush. It's a divine disclosure. Buddha said self-realization is an exalted state of inner attainment which transcends all dualistic thinking and which is above the mind system with its logic, reasoning, theorizing, and illustrations. It is realized suddenly and intuitively as a turning about takes place in the deepest seat of consciousness. So what they're all pointing to is some other way of knowing, a way of knowing that the West has lost the materialist modern West. A way of knowing that's called in some traditions, as the Buddha talked about, self-realization, enlightenment, prajna, jnana, and the word I use is gnosis. It's not a way of knowing that is either experiential in the sense of having a particular experience, although in a certain sense it's closer to experience, and sometimes mystics talk about it that way, as we'll get to, or through the intellect. It's not about having a certain idea of truth that matches experience. Sometimes it's been called knowledge through identity. So it's not about a subject knowing an object. It's about a realization of the unity of subject and object. As the Hindus say, it's the realization that I am that, which is the realization that the I who you think of as you, is truly not you. Your true self is identical to Brahman, to all of reality. And that's meant not only as some sort of highfalutin idea, it's meant that when you look at any object, this glasses case, truly speaking, you realize there's no distinction between you and that glasses case. Different way of knowing that cannot be put into words. So if it cannot be put into words, why bother to say anything? There was a, a Sufi. Uh, he was recognized by the people around him as having a high degree of spiritual attainment, but he never spoke. And so one day someone asked him, why don't you ever speak about God? We know you know about God. And he said, what can be spoken about is not worth speaking about. 
And what is worth speaking about can't be spoken about. So I don't say anything. Of course, he already violated his rule there. But why bother trying to say anything? The answer is actually quite simple. The answer is compassion. The answer is a recognition that there is suffering in the world and a desire to alleviate that suffering. The story of the Buddha illustrates this. After the Buddha's enlightenment, he knew this could never be put in words. And if he started talking about it, people would just think he was bananas. And what was the point? Nobody's going to understand him. And he had no intention of going out and teaching, as the legend goes. And then all the gods of the universe came and they pleaded with the Buddha and they said, please, there are, there are some who have little dust in their eyes, who aren't so completely steeped in delusion. And you can reach them. You must try. And then he realized that was true, and so he decided to teach. It's out of compassion. Trying to use words to direct people to this realization that is beyond words. But there's always this understanding in all mystical traditions, every teaching has this preface, whether it's explicit or implicit. This preface that the Buddha describes explicitly when he says, these teachings are only a finger pointing toward noble wisdom. They are intended for the consideration and guidance of the discriminating minds of all people but they are not the truth itself, which can only be self-realized within one's own deepest seat of consciousness. You cannot get the truth from any teacher, or any professors, or any scientists, or anybody else. It only comes from within the deepest seat of your own consciousness. So all words can do is act as sort of a catalyst to make something happen within you. They don't transmit truth. Now, the problem is, not only can't words communicate the truth of the mystics, because this truth is incommunicable in words, when the attempt is made, it itself produces contradictions within the teachings. So, for instance, here are two teachings of Ananda Moyamai. On the one hand, she says, describing the end of the path here, then when at his lotus feet one has sacrificed without reserve whatever small power one possesses, so that there is nothing left that one may call one's own, do you know what he does at that fortunate moment? Out of your littleness he makes you perfect, whole, and then nothing remains to be desired or achieved. She's describing this gnosis, this realization in the deepest seat of consciousness, this turning about. She puts it in terms of a relationship with God, and she describes it as God making something happen, making you whole, perfect. But later she says, nothing has happened. To be able to understand this is very fortunate. If you can understand that nothing has happened, you have indeed been blessed with inner vision. It's a contradiction. On one hand, she says something happens. On the other hand, she says nothing happens. It's very confusing to people to read through mystical texts, and they run into these contradictions. 
So how can we understand this? Which is the truth here, we could say. Is the first passage she writes about something happening, God's doing something, or the second passage where she says nothing's happening? We can begin to get a grasp of this by trying to sort out at what level she's talking. So we could say the first level, she's talking from the point of view of the seeker. The point of view of the person who's still seeking. That all that person can do is surrender. It's not something that can be accomplished through will. This surrender, that's what a person can do. Surrender this sense of self-centeredness. As the Bhagavad Gita put it, stop seeing yourself in the center of this whole world. And then something will happen. Described in Hindu cosmology as God doing something. But then from the point of view of someone who has realized, nothing has happened. So we have two points of view here. We could say in a certain sense that these teachings are complementary in the way that modern physics uses complementary concepts. What is matter? Well, it's a particle and it's a wave. It's not a particle and a wave ever at the same time. It depends on how you look at it. If you set up an experiment one way, it appears as a particle. If you look at it through another experiment, it appears as a wave. So this is the different points of view. From the point of view of the seeker, her first passage is correct. From the point of view of realization, her second passage is correct. You even have to use correct here with a grain of salt. More appropriate might be a better way to put it. So for clarity's sake, mystics distinguish between levels of truth. This is what Walpola Ruhula, who is a Theravadian Buddhist, says about the Buddhist conception of this. There are two kinds of truth, conventional truth and ultimate truth. When we use such expressions in our daily life as I, you, being, individual, etc., we do not lie because there is no self or being as such, but we speak a truth conforming to the conventions of the world. But the ultimate truth is that there is no I or being in reality. Some people say, well, if there really is no I, uh, look at the uh, mystics, they're always talking about I or you. I say to Jennifer, would you please turn off the music? What is this? Well, this is the nature of language. It's a convention. This is why there's no true language, you know. It's not why English is true and Chinese is not true. They're conventions. And we understand that and we use language. It serves a practical, pragmatic purpose. So there's no problem in using language when you understand it's a convention. It doesn't fool you. So right away we have the conventional <clears throat> and the ultimate truth just in terms of how we speak in everyday fashion for very practical sorts of ends and then when we switch over to speaking in a spiritual way, having spiritual teachings or spiritual discussions. The Hindu mystic Shankara divided all knowledge into the relative and the absolute, which in Sanskrit was the apara and para. Apara is relative and para is absolute. And he talked about all the forms of education in Hindu society at his time, most of which were based on the Vedas, but there would be things like medicine and morality and so forth. 
And all this was apara. It was perfectly fine within the realm of Maya. It applied within the realm of Maya. But then the Vedas also spoke about the para-truth, that truth that transcends words and thoughts, the ultimate truth. So when you read through the Vedas, according to Shankara, you have to be careful what level you're reading. Are the Vedas speaking at the apara level or at the para level? Otherwise, you get very confused because the Vedas seem to contradict each other all over the place. There's also the problem of the language that a particular seeker uses. We saw a video here last Sunday about Krishnamurti, and there was a comment by a Tibetan uh, lama. And he said, when Krishnamurti talks about the absolute truth, I find no contradiction between what he said and what the Buddha taught. But then he made an interesting observation. He said, but Krishnamurti never comes down to anybody else's level. He never will speak conventionally. He'll never speak relatively. And the Buddha did. So in a certain sense, you could say, well, Krishnamurti's teachings are very pure, although they're still in words and they're still not the absolute, absolute truth. But the Buddha treated everybody he met or dealt with them where they were at. So in Buddhism it said Buddha had many teachings because there are many people all at different levels of development or with different sorts of delusions. He didn't hold himself aloof, fixed on, only going to speak about the absolute truth. And you find most mystics in most traditions have done this, again, out of compassion. But when you do this, you're bound to have contradictions arise. Something I might say to one of you will be quite different than something I might say to another one of you. But the whole point of this teaching is not to write some doctrine in stone. It's to be a process. It's to get things going. So for this reason, there are levels of truth within teachings. Those truths that are relative within the teaching and those truths which are absolute. And when we say absolute here, we mean only that their aim is the absolute. They're pointing directly at the absolute. Whereas a relative truth may be pointing to some practical steps to be taken or something like that. So, for example, Shankar teaches, on the one hand, attachment to body, objects, and persons is considered fatal to a seeker for liberation. He who has completely overcome attachment is ready for the state of liberation. Kill this deadly attachment to body, wife, children, and others. But then he also teaches, There is neither birth nor death, neither bound nor aspiring soul, neither liberated soul nor seeker after liberation. This is the ultimate and absolute truth. So these two things contradict each other. On the one hand, he's talking about uh, someone being attached to objects and possessions, and this is fatal to a spiritual seeker. I mean, we presume there must be spiritual seekers. He's talking about them. And he's giving some instruction here. He who has completely overcome attachment is ready for the state of liberation. It sounds like there's some sort of state of liberation. It sounds like there's some sort of state of bondage. But then he says, there is neither birth nor death, either bound nor aspiring soul, 
neither liberated soul nor seeker after liberation. That seems to completely contradict what he just said. But he adds, this is the absolute truth. This is a teaching that is pointing now to the absolute directly. Again, we can understand this if we can see that the first teaching is a relative truth enjoining a practice on someone who wants to follow his way. It's the practice of detachment, which you'll find in all mystical traditions. To speak about the practice of detachment, he has to use words like a disciple, a seeker, and then things that a seeker could be attached to. And you're speaking again within the realm of delusion, within the realm of maya, within the realm of this fictional world that the mind has constructed. It's a practical teaching. Here's something you can do. That will lead you to understand for yourself through this turning about in the deepest seat of your consciousness, the ultimate teaching. There really was no secret to begin with. Here's another one that's really confused people. This comes from the Buddhist tradition. This is the Diamond Sutra, which is one of the great, great texts of Mahayana Buddhism. And one of the fundamental things that distinguishes Mahayana Buddhism from Theravadin Buddhism is the Bodhisattva vow. And so in this particular sutra, Subhuti is questioning the Buddha about the Bodhisattva vow. And the Buddha replies, Subhuti, any good pious disciple who undertakes the practice of concentrating his mind in an effort to realize highest perfect wisdom should cherish only one thought, namely, when I attain this highest perfect wisdom, I will deliver all sentient beings into the eternal peace of nirvana. And yet, Subhuti, if the full truth is realized, one would know that not a single sentient being has ever been delivered. And why, Subhuti? Because of the Bodhisattva Mahasattvas have kept in mind any such arbitrary conceptions as one's own self, for other selves, living beings, or a universal self, they would not be called Bodhisattva Mahasattvas. And what does this mean, Subhuti? It means that there are no sentient beings to be delivered, and there is no selfhood that can begin the practice of seeking to attain highest perfect wisdom. Boy, there's the contradiction all in one paragraph laid out for you. On the one hand, he says, the most important thing to do when you begin your practice is to take this vow to deliver all sentient beings, not to seek enlightenment for yourself. In the Buddhist tradition, this isn't just your family and friends or even your country or even humanity. This is every little mosquito and ant and cockroach that you meet. All sentient beings through all the cycles of time. It's a heavy vow. And yet, he turns around and he says, in the same paragraph, if the full truth were realized, there's no one to be liberated. Not only is there no one to be liberated, there's no one to go on the path. Isn't this what Shankara said, by the way? Notice that, too. When I say mystics always say the same thing, there's a very good example of it. Again, what does this mean? The first part of this is a relative truth. 
It's a spiritual teaching. It's not just relative in a practical, pragmatic sense about going down to the corner store and buying milk or getting your car fixed up at the mechanic. It's a high teaching. It's a very potent, powerful teaching, the Bodhisattva vow. But within the teaching itself, it's still relative. It is through taking the Bodhisattva vow, which is an instruction for our practice, that again, you can realize the truth of the second passage, which he says, if the full truth were known, it's a passage that points to the ultimate truth. So these two truths really refer to two levels of truth, relative and absolute, and they refer to truths that have to do with a practice. And those teachings that point to the absolute. Now, actually, we should say that it's not just two truths here, but a gradation of truths. Dionysius, one of the fathers of Christian mysticism, writes, the higher we soar in contemplation, the more limited become our expressions of that which is purely intelligible. Even as now, when plunging into the darkness which is above the intellect, we pass not merely into brevity of speech, but even into absolute silence. This communicates the idea that as your practice deepens, as you get more and more insights and deeper and deeper insights, they'll be harder and harder to express, to put into words. Long before you reach the ultimate truth, you'll begin to realize why words are so inadequate to express these things. Now, interestingly enough, the more this happens, the more transparent teachings become to you. Because you'll read a teaching and suddenly it'll make sense because now it's your own insight. And you go back and now you read it in a different way. You understand what the teacher was trying to get at in this crude form of communication with words. But now you see what the words were referring to. And then there's another complication in this. And that is some teachings that are true at one level will not be true at the next level, but then at another higher understanding become true again and back and forth. So we have to be careful about saying, oh, well, that's just a relative teaching. Maybe you should look at it again. I'll give you one example of this, but this is true of many, many uh, different teachings. In the Christian tradition, there's the doctrine of the resurrection of the flesh. After death, the flesh comes back is usually the way it's interpreted. In fact, at the most fundamental exoteric level, it's you die and you go into the grave and you sit there until judgment day and then the trumpets sound and you actually get up in your body. And then you either go to heaven or hell in your body. Now, at a stage of awakening of faith, very early stage of religious awakening, spiritual awakening, you might take this quite literally, just as I described it. This is what's going to happen. Then if you investigate a little bit more, the stage of investigation of teachings, you might come to understand that this is an exoteric doctrine, and it's not the essence of Christianity, and it's not what Jesus is talking about in terms of eternal life. And so you might dismiss it as a completely exoteric doctrine. 
the stage of unification of self, when, when actually uh, things start happening within you, you might come to see this symbolically, that you feel like there's a kind of resurrection, that your own life has been resurrected. And not just mentally, but physically too, bodily in a certain sense. You feel more energy, you feel a purpose in life, you feel a direction in life. And you might say, oh, well, now I understand that teaching was really symbolic of something that actually happens on a spiritual path. When you get involved in meditation, and observing and analyzing phenomena and watching closely, stage of purification of the mind, you may discover there's no flesh at all. There's no body at all. What you thought was a body isn't a body. All the perceptions change along here completely. In the stage of illumination of the heart, you might have a kind of vision that uh, St. Teresa had. You might see Jesus Christ appear to you, especially if you are still working within a Christian tradition, in a vision. Well, then you say, this is what the resurrected flesh is. Not necessarily literally atoms and so forth, but that somehow in the universe, Jesus' form is still there and can appear in visions. At an archetypal level, we might say. All these different meanings of the resurrection of the flesh might occur to you through insights along the spiritual path. And finally... With Gnosis, you might want to describe this as not only the resurrection of the flesh, but the resurrection of everything. There's a beautiful passage from, it's not from the Gospels, I think it's from maybe Paul or Peter. Oh no, maybe it's from um, Revelations about the new heaven and the new earth. The old heaven and the old earth will pass away and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And I'll tell you from my own personal experience, I always dismiss this as some sort of, you know, exoteric ramblings of the revelations. I knew exactly what he was talking about. Exactly. It's beautifully put. So we have to even be careful about dismissing any teaching as though it were, no, now I've understood it at an exoteric level, now I've understood it's relative, and I've gotten all the meaning I can get out of it. Get what meaning you can get out of it at the time, make use of it as best you can at the time, and then maybe you go on to other sorts of teachings, but be careful about dismissing any of these things ultimately. Be careful about making this distinction between the relative and the absolute an ultimate distinction. If you're careful about not clinging to any of your perceptions about these levels, you'll be okay. If not, the Buddha has a warning. If a man becomes attached to the literal meaning of words and holds fast to the illusion that words and meaning are in agreement, then he will fail to understand the true meaning and will become entangled in assertions and refutations. A certain amount of spiritual debate is good and healthy in a society, especially in a society undergoing a revolution as ours is. The early Christians, before they came to full political power and started burning each other at the stake, they believed in debate. They had these great public debates that would go on for three days. 
Their idea of defeating heresy wasn't to burn heretics, it's defeat them and debate, which is a perfectly good democratic way of going about it. Debates not to establish necessarily the ultimate truth, which cannot be established in words, but it does establish a sharpness of a teaching. It does allow people to see the difference between teachings because it brings out differences. But when people get attached and cling to these teachings as though they were absolute, then you start getting into problems. Then these distinctions start to become real for you. The world starts to become divided up in very ugly ways. So listen to the Buddha's warning. The words and the meaning, as he says, are not in agreement. The words are pointing to something. They're pointing to insights that you can have. Then you'll understand the words, but it's not because the words are anything special. It's as though I went to the Himalayas and I took a snapshot of Mount Everest. And I brought it back and I said, here's a picture of Mount Everest. It's not Mount Everest, it's a picture of Mount Everest. And if you said, oh, I'm on my way over to, to uh, the Himalayas, I'm trying to find Mount Everest, say, here, take this picture, and then you'll recognize Mount Everest when you see it, if you approach it from a certain angle. So you take that picture, you put it in your pocket, and you go off to the Himalayas, and you start stumbling around, and you pull out the picture, and, oh, there's Mount Everest. The picture and the mountain are not the same thing. And the only use of this snapshot in this situation is to guide you to the Himalayas. You can throw that snapshot away afterwards. Now, actually, you wouldn't want to throw that snapshot away. It was valuable for you. It helped you, guide you to see the Mount Everest. So you might want to take it back and pass it on to someone else. You might want to make a little amendment on the, a snapshot. You might see that a little bit of it was uh, clouded over the peak in the snapshot, and now you're seeing it on a clear day, so you might pen in what the peak looks like for the next seeker. Add to the teaching a little bit. That's how teachings grow. But it is not the snapshot that's important. It's not the words. Finally, and most profoundly, even the distinction between the relative and the absolute is itself a relative distinction. All distinctions are relative. It's a distinction that we draw to help clarify teachings. But it itself must be seen as only relative. This is why Nargajuna, who was one of the great Buddhist philosophers, writes, the ultimate reality is called prajna only by imposing a name on the plane of the relative. In the ultimate truth, prajna is the reality in which there is not even the distinction of knowledge and reality, or knowing and being, or even of knowledge and ignorance. Notice, even when we talk about ultimate reality, We've imposed a name that has now divided reality into the ultimate and the relative. Once again, we've done it. We can't avoid doing it when we use words. And to come back to Ananda Moyamai, she says the same thing. 
so long as there are the opposites of knowledge and ignorance. In other words, distinction and the idea of difference, the Brahman cannot be realized. By merging in the Brahman, all differences dissolve and one is forever established in one's true being. Same thing. Even this distinction, which is fundamental in all mystical traditions between ignorance and knowledge, ignorance and gnosis, between the relative world and the absolute world, between the world of delusion and the world of truth itself, that distinction has to be ultimately surrendered, or better yet, seen to be itself only imaginary. All mystical teachings truly deconstruct themselves. Not like modern deconstructionism, where it's an endless, ongoing, interminable process. Spiritual teachings are designed to deconstruct themselves. Worlds that are created by conditioned thought and words and distinctions roll on forever. There's no way out. But a teaching takes those distinctions and starts to knock them off one after another, deconstructs them all until finally there's nothing left to cling to. And that's the realization, oh, that they were all just imaginary from the beginning, from the get-go. So, to summarize, all distinctions are imaginary and spiritual teachings are no exception. They are like sheet music to music. You know, musical score, you got these little squiggles on a piece of paper. Of themselves, they mean nothing. They guide you to creating music. They are not the music. You cannot do without them, or let's say it's more difficult to do without them, but they are not the music. If you're in possession of the sheet music of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and that's all you have, you do not know anything about Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. If some surviving culture in the future dug up out of the archives this, and they knew it was music, but they didn't know how to interpret it, they didn't have the instruments or anything, they do not have Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. They've got a code that if they could unlock it, and reconstruct the instruments and so forth, then they might know what Beethoven's Ninth Symphony was. So if you do not follow the teachings, if you do not use this score, this music sheet, it becomes almost impossible to realize the ultimate truth. But, on the other hand, if you come to believe that the teachings themselves are absolute, they will become for you an absolute barrier to that realization. So this is a teaching about teachings to help you sort your way and find your way through this maze of teachings. And always, of course, to help you apply them to your own life, because that ultimately is what it's all about.
So are there any comments or questions? So when you say the thoughts are, um, were you saying the thoughts, like words, create divisions and distinctions? So that would include any visual image or any sound, right? Not just words. I mean, just as you look, you see cats and, you know, rug and book, person, whatever. Um, well, first of all, we see things this way because our thoughts organize the world this way. In other cultures, they don't see things the same way we do because they have a different worldview, a different cosmology. So they experience things differently. And this is one of the primary tasks of a spiritual path is to get you yourself to recognize uh, or separate out thought from experience. So thought isn't just fooling you. I mean, the, the experience that most of us have is shaped by the thought that's passed on by our culture. Our experience is molded by our thought. It's molded in a certain way. That's why we all experience the world one way. If you go to Bali, they experience it differently. Or the bush people in Africa experience it differently. Do you know what I mean? We never see spirits, and they do. Well, it's because the world's divided up differently. Do you see what I mean? So one of the things to do is to start to recognize what is thought and what is bare, naked experience. So when you say, yes, I see a cat, you see a cat, but the distinction between cat and rug is not real. It's a, a distinction created by thought. It's not a question about not seeing a cat. It's seeing, though, at the same time, it's understanding, knowing that that distinction itself is imaginary. This is why I use the example, for instance, of being in a movie house. You go to a movie, all this stuff is going on. It's not that you don't see it going on. If somebody says to you, uh, let's say it's, uh, I don't know, Frankenstein, uh, the Frankenstein monster is chasing a girl. If somebody says, what's going on there? Somebody comes in late, you say, oh, well, the Frankenstein monster is chasing the girl. They just came out of the castle. They're running across the hill, right? You've got no problem describing to me what's going on. But if I say to you, yes, but is this all real? You'd say, no, it's just a movie. Is that helpful at all? Sure. <laughs> Chew on it a little bit. You know, that's like when I woke up, you know, there's the in-between time between sleep and wake, and, and I was nowhere, nothing. It was just this peace in there. And then all of a sudden I realized I had to go into something and... Uh, it wasn't a verbalized question, but it was like a question, okay, who are we going to be today? It was the kind of a feeling. And I had to take from, oh, you know, realize who I was and even when it was. It just was longer than uh, normally, normally wake up. But you talk about deconstruct. It was not actually like constructing the world. It was like I was being deconstructed to get back where I was. Ah. Yes. To, to be here. I was constructed, you know, just like being shoved into an old costume or something. Now, this is a very good insight on several levels. The first level is just what you said. It really is the feeling of the realities being deconstructed to create this world. Yeah. And this is why, for instance... Um, in many traditions, the reality is described as a fullness, that everything is contained in God in potential. And the world is just the manifestation of all the possibilities of God. And they can only manifest according to the laws of form. You can't have contradictory forms. So you take this fullness 
and you start to break it apart in order to get a world. Yeah. You have to mask the fullness of everything. You have to actually negate something to get something. Uh, another example of this is, here's a nice, fairly smooth surface, this, this carpet. If the sun were shining through, let's say a, a window or a skylight, you'd have just this fairly uniform field of light with no form in it. If I want to create form, if I held my hand up and I blocked out some of the light, form would appear as a shadow in this field. It's by negating something that form appears. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's by blocking something out that a world of form comes into being. So in a certain sense, the manifestation of the world is the negation of the fullness of God. Yeah. And that's exactly what you experience when you come through this period of... Uh, it didn't feel profound or anything. It just felt like, oh, like, you know, I have to do it. <laughs> wow, well, so you've still got some attachments <laughs> yeah. there, and now you don't want to do it. You've got a reverse attachment. But then the other thing that's interesting about this, in this space between waking and sleep, which all traditions talk about is a very valuable space, which is a space equivalent to the kinds of samadhis and absorptions that you attain through meditation, in that space, it's through the contrast that you begin to see the nature of the world of form. In other words, if you were in a movie theater and you were a little bit confused about the real nature of what you were seeing on the screen, if I suddenly turn on the theater lights, all this fades and then it becomes more obvious and clear that you've been watching a movie in case you'd sort of lost track of that. So, in states where there's very little structure, or very little form, where the experience is of formlessness, it's in relation to that that the nature of form starts to become more apparent, or I should say more transparent. I read a passage from uh, Wei Ning about mirror-like wisdom. It reminded me of your article about the mirror and the garden <coughs> reality. I just wondered how that relates to the distinctions and forms that we've been talking about. You asked about mirror-like wisdom and the relation to distinctions and forms. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned Wei Ning. The image, the metaphor of a mirror is a very common one in Buddhist tradition particularly, but also Hindu traditions, and also you'll find it appears in Christian and uh, Sufi traditions as well. The idea of the metaphor is that the mind, or consciousness, awareness, whatever you want to call it, is normally constantly rippled by thought, just like the surface of a lake. And because the mind is always so distracted and disturbed, it does not reflect things truly as they truly are. It reflects them in a distorted way. So just like the surface of a lake has ripples on it, and you know you look into it and you see the trees on the shore of the lake, they all be rippling. When the lake gets perfectly calm and smooth, then it reflects the trees perfectly. So this is a common metaphor used at a relative level to describe a state of mind to be achieved in meditation, and, you know, all sorts of things. However, Huaining himself expressed his enlightenment through a poem that attacked that particular image. The story was that he was in a monastery, he was working for the cook, but he had had Gnostic realization. And the master of the monastery uh, was getting old and he wanted to choose a successor. So he asked all the monks to write a little poem expressing their 
their realization, their attainment, you know, how much insight they had, their understanding of the Dharma. And so the chief monk wrote a fairly conventional good poem about the mind is like a mirror bright, and uh, whenever the dust alights, we polish it away in meditation. I've forgotten the exact rendition of it. And he tacked it up to the bulletin board of the monastery, and everybody else read it and thought, oh, that was pretty profound, and nobody else uh, decided to put one up. But Hui Ning at night, he wrote a little poem, and he said, um, there is no mirror bright, so where can the dust alight? And he put that up next to it. And the master called Hui Ning in, and he said, you got it, but I, I can't recognize you because everybody was very upset, so here I give you my robes and bowl, the symbols of the transmission in secret, but you better get out of here because these monks, when they find out, they're going to be after you. And that's a pivotal point in the story of Hui Ning. So, you see what Wei Ning did. It's not that the head monk's poem was wrong. It wasn't a question of wrong. It reflected traditional teachings. It was certainly a venerable metaphor that's been used over and over. But Wei Ning, he wasn't attached to that. And that's what alerted the master to the fact that Wei Ning's insight was superior, was higher. So, this is a very good example of teachings operating at a relative and an absolute level. Any other questions? Okay, well, let's call the formal part of the meeting over. And um, you're welcome, of course, to stay around and have tea and check out the library and chat and talk or whatever.